Welcome to another episode of On Becoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and for this episode, we have a special treat. We'll be talking with Professor John D. Caputo about his own intellectual and religious development. Perhaps you've encountered us on Twitter at OnBecomingPod or Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Uh, you may already know that you can reach us at OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, we would invite you to consider supporting it at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast. You may already know the name of our guest today. I'm trying to remember exactly when I first met Dr. Caputo. I think it would have been around the time I was finishing my doctorate. Professor Caputo has been a mentor to so many people working in continental philosophy, and particularly continental philosophy of religion. He is a truly kind person and has been so helpful to those of us who work in the field. In this respect, I think Caputo is unusual. He actually lives what he says he believes, which is to say that he's extremely gracious. Perhaps you're wondering, well, what makes continental philosophy of religion different from just plain old philosophy of religion? As you can imagine, the answer is going to be complex, but one thing that distinguishes the continental version of religion is that it tends to start with the actual experience of the religious. But of course, if you start with real-life experience, then you realize almost immediately that our experiences differ. It's not just that you have a different experience, say, as an evangelical or a Roman Catholic. It's also that there's an entire world of different religious experiences, whether one's a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or one of the thousands of other religions. When I say thousands of religions, it's important to realize that there may be as many as 10,000 different religions. To be honest, I suspect that we simply don't know how many religions there currently are, and certainly we really have no understanding about all the religions that once existed. Caputo uses a very interesting term to describe his approach, radical hermeneutics. This is an approach that is very clearly influenced by Gadamer, about whom we've already been talking, and also this French philosopher named Jacques Derrida. You can read more about Caputo's approach in his book titled, appropriately enough, Radical Hermeneutics, Though if you're just finding your way into hermeneutics, you might want to read his book titled Hermeneutics, Facts and Interpretation in the Age of Information. That book is written for people who aren't specialists, but just want to understand how interpretation works. Here's a quote from page 10 of that book that I think gets at what uh, um, Caputo is doing. Hermeneutics takes conversation, not critique, as its model of inquiry. And... Uh, let me just add there my own commentary. That's the Gadamer part. Well, deconstruction, which of course is the, the Derrida part, the model is scrupulously close. The devil is in the details, scrutiny. My argument is that each one requires the other. Without deconstruction, hermeneutics risks being naive. Without hermeneutics, deconstruction risks running off the rails. This is why I call this postmodern approach radical hermeneutics. We've talked about hermeneutics before, but it's worth mentioning again that hermeneutics is the art of interpretation. There isn't anything you've ever experienced without hermeneutics. Indeed, if you're listening and you're trying to follow what I'm saying, that's hermeneutics in action. 
So all of human existence is mediated by our interpretations. There are, of course, better and worse interpretations, which means you can't simply assume that your interpretation is automatically correct. And indeed, you also need to put your assumptions and interpretations into question. Here's how Caputo explains that. Hermeneutics provides our best protection against the threat of tyranny, totalitarianism, and terror in politics, and of dogmatism and authoritarianism in ethics and religion. Indeed, these threats can be found anywhere, including the sciences, the art world, or that of economics, anywhere that the quiet dictatorship of a rigid orthodoxy takes root. Orthodoxy discourages dissent, alternative interpretations, and tries to impose a privileged interpretation. You might think that academics would be the kind of folks who'd be really interested in hearing new and different approaches. But my own experience is that when academics say something radically different from what everyone else says, there's usually enormous resistance. I was just reading a lovely article on the philosopher Richard Bernstein, who has written extensively on Gadamer and was kind enough to allow me to be a visiting scholar at the New School there in New York City. But what caught my eye was something that Hannah Arendt had written to him many years ago. This is what she said. All academic thinking, whether right, left, or middle, is conservative in the extreme. Nobody wants to hear what he hasn't heard before. That's a really interesting way of saying this. And I'd love to tell you that Arendt is wrong, that true academics really want to find the truth no matter what. But I think she got it entirely correct. For all the talk about academic freedom, there's actually not that much freedom to deviate from the philosophical orthodoxy. Caputo, of course, is well aware of this problem, but that causes him to question why academics so often simply assume they're right. In case you're thinking, oh, this is just a humanities problem. No, actually, it's also a problem in the natural and social sciences. They also involve interpretation. A certain view or theory becomes the dominant one, and then it makes it difficult to propose something that goes against the grain of that dominant idea. As Caputo puts it, eternal absolute truths are interpretations that we have forgotten are interpretations. The example Caputo uses is climate change. That phrase, climate change, is used to designate a situation in which the world ecosystem is changing and continuing to change. But of course, there are climate change deniers, that is, people who think that the facts don't warrant such a description. I'll leave it to you to figure out which interpretation of the current state of the climate is correct. Most of the disagreements in society today are hermeneutical. I've mentioned this guy, Matt Walsh, who has a podcast. And he was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast and said that the LGBTQ plus community needed to, this is the word that he used, disappear. Not surprisingly, Rogan questioned him over and over, as it turns out, about what exactly it would mean for such a community to disappear. Walsh clearly had no answer to the question and started to wilt under questioning. Those in that community have long felt the expressed or half suppressed idea that we're somehow a threat. But there's clearly hermeneutics at work here. How one decides to treat the LGBTQ plus community is very much based on interpretation. If you're interested in following Caputo's journey, I highly recommend his book, Hoping Against Hope, subtitled Confessions of a Postmodern Pilgrim. 
Here's a quote that gets at the heart of the journey. I grew up in a world where I was taught that divine omnipotence supported the promise of living forever, just so long as I did my part, which mostly meant that I did not anger the priests and nuns who taught me this valuable lesson, did not miss Mass on Sundays and holy days of obligation, that I kept my hands off the girl next door, and most of all, did not become a Protestant. I would later on conclude that this version of religion, which has been given ample time to prove itself, has spun itself out. The philosopher that emerged in me would come to greet that story with a measure of incredulity. It is implicated in a basic mistake about what is going on in the name of God. The question now, put very simply, is what now? The basic mistake, of course, that Caputo is talking about is the attribution to God of what is usually called omnipotence, or it could be called absolute power. If you've done some philosophy, you probably know that this aspect ends up being really difficult, really problematic, because if God is truly all-powerful, then it would seem that God could fix the problem of suffering. Unless, of course, you think that God is not good, or that he's mean, or, you know, like likes us to suffer. I think most people wouldn't think that God is like that. In any case, though, as long as one holds that position, the position of omnipotence, one is forced to come up with justifications to explain why a good and loving God would permit such atrocities. It's at this point that philosophers and theologians try to justify God by saying that we don't understand God's purposes or that the suffering of the world is designed to make us better people. The philosopher Alvin Plantick argues that the world is the perfect world. This world is the perfect world for developing as human beings. He thinks that the world as it stands gives us exactly the right amount of freedom. But that's difficult to believe. Couldn't we still be free to make better choices? Or for that matter, if human freedom requires a world full of suffering, perhaps that's just too high a price to pay. For my part, the idea that God is all-powerful seems far too much like a human conception. God's not just powerful, but all-powerful. What could that possibly mean? It's a concept that is so vague that it ends up being meaningless. A Russian existentialist of the 20th century that nobody reads today made the argument that God is so powerful that he can make 2 plus 2 equal 5. What? Because God is all-powerful, God can talk nonsense? Trust me, this is just the tip of the iceberg that constitutes this problem, known as the problem of evil. At one point in Hoping Against Hope, Caputo addresses the question of why he's still talking about God. He says, this is not me talking. This is talk that already started without me. This is why I myself cannot not talk about God. God will not go away, not because God is a necessary being, but because God is contingent, a part of the world I inherited. Were I born elsewhere, at a different time, all this might be different. Something else might be going on. The name of God is paradigmatic for me, and there is nothing I can do about it. I think this probably captures the reality for some listeners. Having raised the question about who or what God really is, what's the answer? Dr. Caputo is a long-time friend, and it's particularly exciting to have him on the podcast. 
He taught for many years at Villanova University, where he was the David R. Cook Chair in Philosophy. Then he became the holder of the Thomas J. Watson Chair at Syracuse University. Among the many accomplishments of Dr. Pudo is having put on so many conferences. There were four on postmodernism and religion at Villanova, and then another set on similar themes at Syracuse. Interestingly enough, at that first conference in 1997, there was a group of pastors who wanted to get a better idea of what this postmodern stuff was about. One of them was named Brian McLaren, someone who's become a prominent postmodern figure himself. Those pastors clearly knew something important. When it comes to matters postmodern, Caputo is the expert. He's the author of so many books, I'm not even sure what the exact number would be. Jack, do you know what the number is? It, it's it's about 21 or 22 uh, books, and then another, uh, I, I think around eight edited volumes, something like that. Yeah, that's and, a lot. Uh, and a bunch of articles, you know, a couple hundred yes. articles. Yeah. Um, well, one more thing before we get started. I just want to say that um, it is a privilege to interview Dr. Caputo, not merely because he is a great uh, scholar um, and also a really lovely person, but also because he's been a friend and um, a real supporter for many, many years. And I'm extremely grateful to him. Anyway, thank you so much, Jack, for, for being on the show. My pleasure, Bruce. You probably realize that this podcast is called Unbecoming. There are different reasons for that, but one of the reasons was I'm interested in the question of how we become who we are. I'm partly interested in that question because, as you know, my life has had a lot of different twists and turns. Um, I now live in Scotland. I, I could have never anticipated that. Even, even 10 years ago, if someone said, you know, you'll end up living as well. <laughs> I'd never believe that. So I'm just wondering, would you like to give us a kind of um, basic idea of how you see yourself becoming? I realize that, um, you know, you talk about growing up in, in Philly and um, you briefly considered uh, becoming a brother um, and then something else happened. I don't know what, what, where you'd like to jump in. Well, that's the beginning. That's what that's. Uh, I was going to say you you ended up in Scotland without seeing it coming, but uh, I never left Philadelphia. <laughs> I've spent my whole life. Well, I, I we right now live about fifteen miles from where both Kathy and I grew up, and uh, even my PhD and doctoral, my BA, MA, and PhD were all done at local uh, institutions. So from a physical point of view, I have led a completely uh, monochrome, unadventurous, un <laughs> unpostmodern life. I've lived in the same place all my life. But the intellectual journey has been uh, more variegated and more uh, un unforeseeable. Um, and you point to the, the crucial point, which is... Uh, the time I spent in the in the Catholic religious order, for I was there. I was a member of Catholic religious order, the, the De La Salle brothers, who or, or Christian brothers, who um, taught in my high school. So I grew up in a very very Irish Catholic um, 
blue collar neighborhood in Southwest Philadelphia. And I was uh, very uh, religious in the sense of uh, com I completely, I had been completely saturated by and, and absorbed by the Roman Catholic world in which I was born. And uh, I was, it was pre-Vatican Council to Catholicism, basically Council of Trent Counter-Reformation Catholicism. And uh, I was utterly immersed in that. I just completely believed every word that I heard and without an ounce of rebellion. And uh, I had thought originally that I wanted to be a priest, uh, but when I went to high school, I met the De La Salle brothers who were uh, high, basically high school teachers. And I was very attracted to that. And I thought, I thought, really, I thought in terms of the economy of salvation, I thought, well, God made me to love him and serve him in this world and to be happy with him in the next. That's what the Baltimore Catechism said. And I right, absolutely right. believe that. I mean, we would we we memorized the Baltimore Catechism, and so I thought, well, here is the way to save my soul and go to heaven, and do something that looks really cool, and that is be a high school teacher and work with high school kids, and teach them uh, English literature and religion, and that's what my life. So I entered the uh, Catholic uh, this this Catholic religious order. Went through a very monastic novitiate. I mean, you would have think they were, you would think they were preparing us for the 13th century. Um, it was it was an interesting <laughs> experience because it, it was you know it was a classical monastic world except for the I always like to say except for the indoor plumbing and the and the electricity. It might as well have been the 13th century. Silence, manual labor, prayer, study, the whole thing. And that was a terrible shock, and it was all—it was very difficult to do. It was sort of like boot camp, you know. It was mm -hmm. a, yes, I can imagine a that spiritual boot camp. And then I, I got through that, and I—that's the best way to put it—is I got through it. Um, and then they sent us to uh, high school, college to prepare for high school teaching, and it was there in this context of of Catholic theology and of Thomas Aquinas in particular that I learned was exposed to philosophy. Because in the Catholic intellectual tradition, uh, the, the Catholic tradition is uh, uh, very, very closely tied to philosophy. It's, it's, it's an intellectualist tradition which uh, it goes back to Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, especially then. Now, nowadays, it's a much different world. But then, Particularly then, it, we, it was a world in which all those things that I had that the nuns made us memorize in the Baltimore Catechism, I discovered, actually go back to medieval theology, in in no small part to Augustine, but more importantly to Aquinas, because Aquinas was the one who who formulated uh, Catholic theological doctrines. Um, in a way that was canonized by the church. Right, right. And um, and it was all in Latin. So I had taken high school Latin, but you know I hadn't taken it very seriously. So at, in college, I went back and, and studied Latin much more carefully and I started to immerse myself in Thomas Aquinas in order to understand the theology. But in the course of that, 
I realized how deeply philosophical it all is. And, mm, yes. and if you asked me in those days, what's the difference in philosophy and theology? You know, I would I would have given you a sort of standard answer, but in practice, they were the same thing for me. It was philosophical theology, theological philosophy. I mean, they were just woven together. The the Summa, St. Thomas's Summa, is called the Summa Theologica, but mm -hmm. it is, you know, thoroughly immersed in, in Aristotelian uh, metaphysics. Yeah, yeah. And at a certain point, I realized actually what I want to do is not teach high school English and religion, but teach philosophy in college. Now, the brothers ran the very college that I was attending. So I told my superiors that's what I wanted to do. And my to superiors told me that's not how it works. We tell you what to do. You don't tell us. <laughs> and so we parted ways amicably. I am still closely in touch with them. We still have reunions of our Nabishit class. I, you know, I, I, I support, I help support them financially as best I can. I have my relationship with the brothers is uh, not merely friendly or amicable. It's loving. You know, they, the, these people really mm -hmm. gave me my true vocation, which was to philosophy. So my my entree to philosophy is exactly what you pointed out at the start. The, the, those four years I spent in the brothers, and I, I I never left it. You know, I I tried to leave it several different times. You know, I tried to leave uh, the questions of theology uh, behind and be a philosopher. Uh, radical hermeneutics meant radical hermeneutics. It didn't mean radical theology. Um. But the more I, I began to dig into uh, philosophy, the more inescapable the theological questions are. Yes. In yes. exactly the same way. That, so, and, and I think now, if you ask me now, I would say that at bottom, they are fundamentally the same thing and they're inseparable from each other and you can't do one well without the other. Um, the main thing you have to do is to speak like a Husserlian. You have to, if, you have to carry out... A, a super, what I call a supernatural epoche, you know, a, a, an epoche of the supernatural attitude, not just the natural attitude, and drop the um, what I think is the fantasy or the hallucination or the illusion or the right. mistaken belief that what we're talking about when you read the scriptures uh, or read read theologians. And what we're talking about is some kind of um, the result of some kind of supernatural intervention on the natural order. Um, on on the contrary, it is, in the language of philosophy, uh, a hermeneutics of facticity. It's it's people who mortals who live and die, who 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 are who suffer and are joyous, who love and who hate trying to make sense of their lives and the scriptures so the scriptures supernaturalism is a kind of theo optical illusion you know it, it Ooh, you're taking interesting way of been, putting it yeah you're taking things that have been born from the ground of your being you know from viscerally and um uh, are are it, 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 soundings from the deep and mistaking them for something that dropped from the sky Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, some some kind of uh, in intervention from on high. Not interventions from on high. They're they're expressions of something going on in us, which is uh, 
deep and and not absolutely inaccessible, or we wouldn't be talking having this conversation. But but accessible only uh, indirectly and obliquely, and in what I think are images and symbols and uh, what what the what Hegel and Schelling called uh, a Vorstellung, an imaginative figure, which we're trying to uh, give give expression to. Um, it's, and once you once you think about theological questions that way, then they stop being supernatural, and they start be, and they become, I, I would say, you know, in the language of philosophy, phenomenological. So uh, the only proper way to talk about the theological issues, I think, is phenomenological or hermeneutical or deconstructive. You know, and I, I'm happy with any of those words. Um, otherwise, they're mystifications. But once you demystify them, then you're talking about something profoundly important, which is why I like the word theopoetics. You know, you're it, right. it's a kind of it's a kind of poetry, but it's a di slightly different version of poetry or, or adaptation of poetry, which is addresses itself to limit questions, to questions of being and non-being, meaning and non-meaning, life and death. But it, it pushes, if it's phenomenology, it pushes phenomenology to the very limits. And it, it, it raises questions of, as, as Tillich said, ultimate concern. Um, and then the classical idea of philosophy is dealing with ultimate principles. It is all, it is all of that. But, but it is not that, I think, as a speculative, uh, demonstrative, um, syllogistic or, or argumentative thing, it's that as a phenomenological zaka, you know, it's a, exactly. it's, it's the stuff of our lives, uh, which we're trying to make sense of. And then when you think like about theology like that, I don't see any difference between theology and philosophy. And the reason is I see both of them to be some kind of deep hermeneutic, uh, radical hermeneutic phenomenology. Yeah, that seems of correct. Being to me. mortal, you know, right. being right. Being, well, so, but and that all started with spending four years as an absolutely straight up devout Roman Catholic who thought that all the Protestants were going to hell because they were heretics. You know, I'm I, so I, sorry I, to hear that, but um. <laughs> <laughs> I spent. I spent many years in my growing up thinking. I had these good friends, you know. We were, it was a Catholic neighborhood, but there were I had a number. There were Protestant kids in the area, and I used to think, "Good Lord, what is going to happen to those people? They're nice. They're nice guys, but you know, they're heretics." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like you know when I often get invited, or I used to anyway, to 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 eat. Um, like you invited me to Wheaton once. Once. I would get invited to even schools in a, in a conservative Christian tradition, and I would meet these students who were just sort of re re trying to recover from evangelical fundamentalist stuff. And I never went through that, but I went through a completely analogous experience, not about the Bible and inerrantism, but about the church and the Pope and infallibleism. Yeah, yeah. It was and it, it was the same kind of authoritarianism. It was different, but it was a it's a perfect analogy of this authority that terrifies you. You know, and you I mean, we we always, always, always were worried that we were going to say something that contradicted the teachings of the church, not the Bible, the teachings of the church.
So I and understand that's such that an interesting true. way of putting it because, of course, you know, Protestants would would never never think in those terms. But yeah, I can no. see how 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 that. But it's an analogous it's an analogous terror. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let me stop you for a moment, if I might, and maybe you feel like you've already addressed what I'm about to ask. But it's it's it, it's a question that I've been thinking about myself. Um, Growing up evangelical for me meant that I was pretty much immersed in that world. Um, yeah. The reality, of course, is it wasn't it wasn't all in Philadelphia. Uh, we moved all over the place, you know. Um, I, we basically moved every four years growing up, and so I, you know, had to get used to lots of different things. But the the one constant was being part of the evangelical church. I think back to when I was in high school. Um, really the, the social group that I, you know, that, that I was part of was not from high school. It was from my church and the, the group met, um, twice a week on, on Sunday and Wednesday evenings over at somebody's house who had a swimming pool and a tennis court and all that kind of stuff. So, um, it was both religion and, you know, fun. Um, and that was all great in many ways. One thing that I came to realize, and I, I've come to realize, you know, over time is how much I was in in effect sheltered from the world. How many things like I simply didn't know about. Um, right. And I I say that Definitely. because I I you know I realized that you are somewhat older than I am, um, and then I come along and and um, and then I, I look at people you know today, and I I think that. You know, for many for many kids, they 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 are pretty aware of what's going on in the world, partly because of the internet, uh, maybe largely because of the internet. Um, but I just think back to growing up evangelicals, like we just didn't know any anything else. So, yeah, there were some some Catholic kids down the street, yes, and I'm sure I thought that they were going to hell. <laughs> I don't know if yeah. you just felt like you had that kind of experience where you were kind of sheltered. Uh, people used to talk about the evangelical bubble. Yeah. Oh no, it was exactly like that. Exactly like that. But analogous. It wasn't. Wasn't the. It wasn't the Bible. It was the church. Yeah. The. Yeah. yeah that's why. I, I, after I finished my master's degree, which and I wrote a dissertation on basically on Saint Thomas's theory of angels, <laughs> his angelology, because it actually turned out to be the key to understanding his metaphysics. But that's another story. It's also interesting now because of the parallels that you can construct between angels and artificial intelligence. The, the medieval imagination was in, was constructing a, a figure that is really, really, really similar to artificial intelligence. One 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 example. I mean, this is a, digre, a, a diversion, but let me just say it. That's okay. Um, you used, used to make fun of uh, medieval angelology be, uh, under the question, how many angels can you pack <laughs> on the head of a pin? Okay. Analogous question. How much information can you store on the smallest possible microchip? Very. <laughs> that's not a joke. That is a very actually pertinent comparison. Okay. Anyway. And, and but, actually, that's so a I was really like, helpful one, too. Thanks. Yeah. It's a striking one, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So that's how Catholic I was, right? I wrote a, my MA thesis was on medieval angelology. At the end of my master's degree, I thought, you know what? This can't be the whole story. I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm in a bubble, as you put it. 
And that's why I went to Bryn Mawr College. I did not go, I, I was thinking seriously of going to Fordham University, which was the most progressive Catholic uh, program within reach. It wasn't too far from Philadelphia. New York's not that far from Philadelphia. I was thinking of that. Then I thought, well, you know, Bryn Mawr is down the street from Villanova, first of all. So that means I didn't have to move. Um, but also it's not Catholic. And it, it was also not analytic. It, it had analytic philosophy and and uh, uh, mathematical logic, which I actually was, was interested in. But it was sort of Oxbridge. It was it was it even looked like Oxbridge. You know, it, it, you know, it was this academic Gothic buildings, and it and it had a completely uh, Oxbridge uh, format of seminars, no grades, written evaluations at the end of the semester. And, and an emphasis on the history of philosophy, which was being taught from an English point of view. So I got the English mm. story on Greek philosophy, where my understanding of Greek philosophy was it was an antecedent to Augustine and Aquinas. <laughs> right. You know, it was a <clears throat> Whereas at Brimmer, they just, they, you know, we were re reading people like T Taylor and Guthrie and, the, and these historians. Um. Who English historians who were right. not trying to sell you a bill of goods, and the same thing with modern philosophy. Modern philosophy I understood to be a decline, corruption of of the 13th century, begun with Scotus and Occam, and then then it it just it just fell into this abyss called modern philosophy. Well, I got a different story about Kant and Hegel from from these people. So and that so and that immensely broke the bubble. It broke the bubble, mm -hmm. and I I yes. started to see that Thomas Aquinas did not. This in from the sky. He was a 13th century. I used to remind myself. He spoke Italian. Tommaso d'Aquino was is his name, and he spoke mm -hmm. Italian. Latin was is the language he used to write the Summa. So he was a real human being. The Oxford, the, the Paris, the University of Paris was right near the Seine River. That actually existed. It was a physical object in space. He was not an angel come down from heaven. And he lived in space and time. And then I started to read Heidegger about the what he called the Seinsgeschick, the, the various epics of being which supply us with a vocabulary in which to speak. And there is one one succeeds the other. And all and it all hit me. <laughs> it all hit me that what I thought was the eternal truth was an historical construction. And then I read started to read about this thing called D construction that whatever has been constructed is deconstructible and then i wrote radical hermeneutics uh, okay. radical hermeneutics is the exposure of the inherited tradition to the to the force the disruptive force the this the the, the I don't want to say relativizing in a bad sense, but the, but relativizing in, a, in the sense of putting something, contextualizing. Yes. The contextualizing power of deconstruction. Deconstruction shows you that whatever it is we hold on to and we need to have things to hold on to, they are deconstructible. And there is something undeconstructible going on there, but it's always out of reach. It's always ahead. It's, always, it's the coming of what we can't see coming, like ending up in Scotland. That's a exactly that's an right. event. Yes, it's the unforeseeability of things, the contingency of, of things, the open-endedness of things, the futuricity. But David, I once said, to deconstruct something is not to break it open and destroy it; 
to deconstruct it is to restore its future to the thing and have, giving a thing a future an unforeseeability is risky business because it may end mm -hmm. up as it may, may be a disaster but it is also the way of discovery and invention and you know re reinvention so all and all that hit me and landed on me and came out in radical hermeneutics so if you look at the first two books i wrote very catholic heidegger mm -hmm. and aquinas heidegger and my and, my, and meister eckhart very catholic and i got elected president of the American Catholic Philosophical Association in the 80s. And if you would have uh, seen me coming, you would have identified me as a Catholic philosopher until Radical Hermeneutics. As a matter of fact, uh, when we submitted Radical Hermeneutics to Indiana University Press, I will not name names here, but it took a long time to referee it. And finally, uh, I, went to, uh, the, I went to my editor yeah. at, at Indiana and she said, listen, we love this book, but we're having a little trouble because it's written by a Catholic. And there are people here who are worried about this, that, that you're a Catholic. And, um, so wait, 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 wait. I, I just want to be clear, clear here. So they were worried about publishing it because you were Roman Catholic? Yeah, I was identifiably Roman Catholic. I mean, I wasn't just happened to be a Catholic. I was identifiably Roman Catholic. I had been writing about Heidegger in oh. the Middle Ages. And so they were a little worried that, you know, where's this coming from? And then John Salas, who was the editor of the um, uh, uh, series, um, talked them down. Ah, very good. That made made good sense. Uh, you know, it's it interesting. was delayed. It was oh. delayed uh, a, a good year, probably before mm. it would have should have, would have been published a year sooner. That's um, a remarkable it, story. I have to go reread the book I wrote called "Hoping Against Hope," <laughs> uh, which I have out here actually, which is um, a great book. That's that's what I'm reduced to, hoping against hope. I guess that's all we can do in the in the midst of of this kind of a time. Yeah, uh, my uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Caputo. I, it's been a, a delight to talk to you. Um, just in case you're wondering, uh, if you tuned in a little later, I'm, I've been talking to Dr. John D. Caputo, author and um, uh, really a remarkable uh, figure in the world of continental philosophy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Bruce, and good, good luck with your podcast. I think it's a great idea. Thank you so much.